Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Mike to New Haven podcast with sports personality Mike Cologne. Here's your host, Mike Cologne. What I'm getting at is a very toxic climate, you know, uh, and you're just looking at it like, yeah, social geez. media really is. Social media is what caused a lot of problems too. I mean, with social media, you have even the internet. You have so much stuff. You have all the pervs who are who are doing child yep. pornography. You have all the people hiding, making, sending out their 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 racist remarks, but they're not exposing who they really are. It's just like ridiculous. I mean, I, I don't really do. I have Facebook, but my Facebook account is basically just cops and yeah. my family. So. Um, I, you know, I, I don't really do a lot of social media. I don't, I don't give my opinions. I don't post anything political. You know, I, I just don't do any of that. No, stuff. I don't do that. Any of that stuff either. It's just better. Cause any, any, I mean, majority of the stuff I don't care about, not to say that I'm callous, but I just, I don't have an opinion. I'm, I'm like, I'm not interested. I have my Twitter, you know, for sports. Cause I'm a Yankees, Knicks, Giants, Rangers. I want to keep up with what's going on with my teams and you know keep up what's going on with the news and obviously like i said promote the show so let me just say for the record if you ever think about joining twitter remember this conversation no don't do it it's the worst one you have linkedin that's fine do not join twitter it's terrible yeah it is bad um so uh moving on we, we kind of talked about how um kids are being affected by this pandemic and with the suicide rates and things like that. So in general, first responders, as we also kind of alluded to earlier, are really affected too, even before this pandemic, just the stuff that you have to see. We talked about the fire department, nurses, paramedics, police, obviously. You guys see the worst of the worst, and it sticks with you. Duty Ron talks about it too. I mean, there are certain things he can't get out of his head. You were in the morgue after 9-11. You can't get that out of your head. And I don't know how anybody would be. And unfortunately, that's why you look at the divorce rate, you look at the alcoholism rate, and unfortunately, the suicide rate too. Amongst first responders, it's particularly high. And we talked about that switch, turning it on, turning it off. You didn't have your kids until a little later. You had your first kid at 36, which is 1998. And so that being said, even before kids and obviously after kids, um, how did you go about trying to make sure you had that healthy balance to where, yeah, you're an effective cop, but when you come home, okay, I'm with my husband. Once you had your kids, I'm with my kids, and I can be a mom. I can be a wife, and I can decompress. It, it took a long time for me to learn how to decompress. I, I, I think I really learned how to decompress maybe in the last 10 years. You know, I think the years before that were really rough for me, even when my kids were young, you know? Mm-hmm. It was just really hard juggling the kids, working, you know, if I had a homicide, you know, having to pick up my kids, drop them off for my mother. It was like really a lot of stress to me in those years, you know. I don't know how I actually survived all those years. 
I think the way I survived basically was exercise. I mean, to this day, I exercise. I try to keep myself healthy. You know, now, I mean, I stopped riding a bike as much because I got hit by a truck in 2018. I I almost got killed. So I haven't really gotten on a bike since then. I'm not riding in the city like I used to, but um, exercise is what I do. And I walk a lot. I got walk 11 miles, you know. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, I walk. And um, especially lately, since COVID started, I've been walking, jumping rope. You know, instead of like gaining weight during COVID, I actually lost weight. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Shout out to you. Yeah, I kept my I kept my I kept myself busy even even when I had COVID. I didn't know I had COVID. I remember jumping rope going, Oh my god, my chest feels so tight but um I had COVID. I didn't realize that I had it. You know, I, I didn't have I, I didn't have it as bad as some people had it, thank God. And one other thing I'm thank God was I didn't affect anyone in my family. Yeah. It didn't affect anyone in my family. It shows that I don't I, I'm not too close to anybody. I kinda like keep my from everybody. But um, I, I really sometimes wonder how I actually dealt with it between the police department, working all those hours, having my kids, taking care, helping take care of my mother, you know, who used to drive me crazy. And I think about how many times I used to yell and scream at her because it was just like it's so much, you know. And also, even to this day, when, the sh- when, when, when things happen in my family, everybody always comes to me like, you know, oh, my God, you know what happened? You're like, you're, you're, like, you're the fixer, you know, yeah. you're the fixer. I mean, and I, now I'm at the point, like now, mm-hmm. even my husband being sick and everything, I don't want to, I don't want to know anything about anybody <laughs> right now for my life, actually, that I'm being a little bit selfish and it's about me now, really. I'm taking care of myself and that's it. My kid, my daughter's 18. I always said when she went to college, that would be it. So I'm basically just now looking out for myself. I need it. I mean, if I have 20 years left in my life, if I can live 20 more years and be like 80 years old. I want to enjoy my life. You know, I, I, I believe, I feel like I've been living my life all these years for everybody else between all the victims and all the people in the police department and all the victims that I had, you know, and, and family, I never really lived my life for me. And I feel like now I am. Well, that was, that was my mom in, in that sense. Cause my mom will be 48 in August. And, and mom, if you hear this and I, I revealed what your age, uh, please don't kill me. Um, <laughs> but she had me, she had, well, she had my older sister when she was 21. She had me when she was 27 and I was, I mentioned this to you when we talked, I was a very sick kid. The first three years of my life, I was in and out of the hospital. I had really bad asthma. It's under control now. I haven't had an issue with asthma in like years. But I, you know, all, she still doesn't sleep well to this day because she always used to look in my guna, my crib, and see if I was okay. And so constantly having to take me to the hospital and all the appointments, constantly having to look after me and my sister as we got through school. You know, when she says now, I need a day for me, I understand. And part of the reason now is, there's something, I mean, daughters, I'm sure, want to do this too, and I'm sure your daughter wants to do it, but there's something about sons. We may drive you guys crazy, meaning moms, but we love our moms, man. Like, any good son, we love our moms because there's that bond. I can't put it into words, but it's a special bond, and so we want to pay it back, and I think that's the part for me now that as I get older, now that I have my driver's license, it's a little tough with the pandemic trying to get a job, but it's all about paying it back so that she can kick her feet up metaphorically and literally speaking and, and relax. Because you guys deserve it. In me, I don't need anything from them. I just need them to <laughs> not need me. That's it. Yeah. They don't need, they need me, and I'll be very happy with that. Yeah. If they don't need me for anything, I'm very, I'm fine with that. I'll help them out, with whatever. But I, just need, I want to be able to jump on a plane and leave and do whatever the heck I want to do, and that's my goal right now. Yeah. And after what happened with this COVID and how easy it is for people to just to drop dead, I want to enjoy my life. Yeah, no, it's 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 understandable. I think it's a lot of us right now. So as I mentioned, but you know what it is? 
way, but people can consider that as a self being selfish, but it's not, you know, no. it's a certain life, especially as cops, all that we've done to self care. Yeah. You have to, take care of yourself. you have You're to really- do it. You have to do it. It's understandable. I mean, like you talked about it, you, you saw, even if you weren't in special victims, you saw a lot, you saw a lot. Yes. I've yeah. seen the worst, the worst, you know, and you know something like, I, I, I'm very grateful for my life. I'm very grateful for everything that God's given me. I really am. I'm very grateful for everything. But now I think it's time for me to enjoy my life. Yeah, and you take it with you. I mean, there's one detective I'm working on. I mentioned to him, I mentioned him to you off the air. I, I don't want to mention it on here because I don't want to spoil it. But he was in the bomb squad for many years. And this man almost got killed on 9-11. Like, his, he, was, he was standing, you know, the old customs house that used to be in front of the Trade Center? He was standing in there, and the North Tower collapsed on top of him. And he wow. lived. His partner was standing 10 feet behind him. His partner got killed. And so something like that, I mean, even if it wasn't extreme stuff like that having to go through in 15, 20, 25 years, however long you spend on the job, at the end of that, when you put in your paperwork and you collect your pension, you just want to be able to take a deep breath and, as you said, enjoy your life because you've earned it, you know? I, I went to work right away. I went, I went to work at NYU for a while after I retired, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so I, I just always been working. I'm always working. You know, I think it's time soon, maybe in another couple of years, I'll, I'll just stop working. Yeah. And, and good for you. Good for you. Because you've been at it a long time. 1982. That's next year to be 40 years that you've been working in one capacity or another. You know, so but that's a long time. I was 14 years old. I've had a job since I was 14. So I've, I've never been without a job since I was 14 years so old. So 45 years. And I'm not trying to make you feel old. I don't want you to reach through the Zoom screen and strangle me. But I don't care. Age, yeah. age is just a number. Yeah, and look, yeah, you. There, there are people. I said this to my sister when I was telling her I was going to have you on. That there are people in their like 20s and 30s that I've seen that do not look as good as you do at at, at your age. You know, and that that's that's tip of the cap to you because it's all about self care. You know, and you take care of yourself. So, p- pivoting. Genes for my mother. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yes, the good genes counts. Um, so you were in the homicide unit. But before I get to the homicide unit, actually, because I want to touch on this. While you were in special victims from 1987 to 1997, I think at that th- during that time period, you also joined the hostage negotiation team. Yes. So being in a hostage, being in that team, talk about seeing the worst of the worst. These are situations that are volatile. Take me through joining that unit and some of the more harrowing experiences you had. That, that was that was that was a really good unit to be in, and and when you're on the hostage team, like you're not you're part of the team, but they only call you when they need you, mm-hmm. so you respond to scenes. I mean, I had two incidences. One of them that I had was a guy who had a woman and a child in, in barricaded in an apartment, and he had a knife, mm-hmm. and I spoke to him for a while, and then I finally convinced him to pass me the child, and I remember being wearing the whole ESU, you know, um, uniform, like the big vest, the helmet, they put it on me, you know, and, and I, they're going to pass the child to me, but they had a plan that when he passed the child, they were going to zoom in and, and push the door and they were going to, they were going to get him. So I remember like being in all this gear, being at the door of this apartment, ready to grab this child. And I had an emergency service officer behind me and he was holding on to me. Like, I'm not sure if what I had on had uh, something to hold on, but I know he was holding on to me. I don't know how he was holding on to me, but he was holding on to me. And I can feel him shaking the guy behind me. Like he was shaking because I guess he was worried what was going to happen when he passed the baby. So the guy passes the child to me. They storm in and they get him and they arrest him. 
that guy had done 10 hostage situations in the past. He's done 10 hostage situations. And now he's in jail. He starts calling me at my command. <laughs> he starts calling me at my command. He called me from jail. You know, so I started worrying, saying, if this guy gets out, was he going to take me hostage? So that was like one hostage situation I had. Another hostage, I had a few, but the ones that I kind of stick out in my head. I had another one where I was talking to this guy for so long. I mean, for so many hours that he wound up shooting himself in the head and he died, you know, so that was really bad, you know, and then you go home and you think about it and it kind of like bothers you a little bit. You can't sleep. You know, you're thinking, what what if I had done this? What if I had done that? Monday morning quarterback it. Well, you start questioning, like, you know, if you made a mistake, you know, and that's the part that bothers me the most in, in law enforcement, especially when you have a case. If you feel like you may have made, may have made a mistake, or if, if something had been different, like with Matias Reyes, you know, um, on that particular case, the Central Park case, if I had found them earlier, would that mother have lived? You know, would that kid, those kids had their mother? So a lot of stuff that bothers you throughout the years. That when you think about it, you know, it still upsets you. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that happens in law enforcement that you know that you just can't shake. That you, you know, it, it, it rides with you through life. You know. Yeah, and that's why I, I tip my cap to all of. Everybody that's done the job and done it the right way, not people that have gone on the job and, and act like a bunch of fools. But, you know. But there's one thing that I have to say, and I really feel this way. I feel every homicide case that I solved and I got the perp, I always feel that that person that died becomes a guardian angel for us. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's uh, definitely harrowing work, to say the least. And, and like I said, I t- 25 years to do it, you know, I wouldn't have been able to last 10 minutes. You know, if I would have seen the first body, I'm like, okay, folks, well, on to the private sector, you know, but it's... it's... Five and a half, like, I, I stayed um, seven months extra in my... I, I stayed for 25 years and seven months. Wow. Wow. So it's, it's uh, yeah, definitely. So um, that being said, now to the homicide unit, because after a decade in Special Victims, um, working with a lot of great detectives, including Sandy Rubino, who was on an episode of Off the Cuff with you. That was a, that was a funny episode, man. You guys told some great stories. Like, did you chase somebody? Was it Sandy that was wearing the skirt, or was it you that chased somebody in a skirt? Wearing the skirt. Because Sandy used to always wear skirts and high heels, you know? <laughs> She'd always wear high heels and skirts. Like, I've always been, like, a tomboy. I grew up a boy, so I kind of always kind of, like, dressed in, in slacks. I did wear skirts in Special Victims, but not high heels. I never wore high heels. I mean, I can't. I don't know how to Imagine wear high running heels. in those. Yeah, right. she did. She ran in them. She was really good. We had a lot of fun when we worked together. Yes, I imagine. So that's some great memories. So that you, I think you mentioned that somebody asked you, "Hey, you want to go to homicide?" You said, "Yeah." So this is what 1998. Yeah, right. I, you know, it's funny. 1998. I remember being with Eddie Rivera in a car, and we were going downtown to pick up mail, and I was like so burnt out. I had, I'd been doing child abuse cases for 10 years already. And after a while, like you just don't want to hear the same story over and over again. Cause when you first go into a sex crimes unit or to any unit in the police department, you always think you're going to make a big impact and you're going to change everything. Mm-hmm. But then you realize you're not changing anything. There's always going to be child molesters. There's always going to be rapes of kids. You know, like even to this day, you, all you do is read. It's still going on. It's never going to change. You know, I mean, but, you know, I mean, if you save that one kid, it makes a big difference. But, you know, um, like going to homicide was the same thing. You think, oh, you, what am I going to do at homicide? I'm going to, you know do a great job but you know people still killing each other you know so yeah i mean you can mark talked about it you know you can get it down to a certain level especially in a metropolis like new york like it went from 2200 plus and commissioner o'neill when he was on this show talked about it too it went from 2200 plus in 1990 to about 200 or something like that around 300 
uh, in the late 2000s and early por- earlier portion of the 2010s, that's about the best you can do. You know, you're never going to get it down to zero in an imperfect world. Um, and eventually, you know, you have to take your foot off the gas, which is something that the NYPD did not do. Um, you know, which has led to some issues, but yeah, I mean, hello, it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day. Couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little, actually a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That's, that's the main point. You're never going to get it down to zero. But as long as you can get it down to a healthy level, like, you know, Bill being a, a sergeant in homicide, he mentioned when he got there in 2002, 165 people were murdered in that year. By the time he left, 50. Would you love to get it down to zero? Yes. But you take what you can get because that's a, 165 minus 50 or minus 115 is 50. That's 115 people that he and his unit saved from being murdered. You know? Yeah, but you, you got to remember one thing. You know, why is it that the numbers were lower? The numbers were lower because you had stopped question and frisk. You had this street crime yeah. unit. You had all these units that were taking the guns off the street. Now, let's see what's going to happen in the next two years when the, those numbers go so sky high because people are now walking around with guns. The perpetrators know that the cops are not going to pull them over. Everybody knows that the cops are not stopping you. No one's chasing you anymore because the cops are not going to do that anymore you know so what's going to happen is those numbers that are down are going to go back up again and, and you see it already dangerous. you see it already i mean how many shootings are there i mean a lot i mean during, there was six already this year how many people have been killed already this year? 33 you see and it, we're only in january i mean february you know yeah. the first crazy it's bad and down here it's the same thing because i have this nightly game it sounds terrible um but i i there's this nightly game that I play in my head, which is, um, is it fireworks or gunshots? Because at, at 738, like, I live on a good street. My neighborhood's not wacky, but around the corner from me is the projects. And at night, you're here, and I'm like, I, is that fireworks or is that, yeah, and that's gunshots. And the people who live in those projects like yeah. i grew up in the projects my brother still lives in the projects like i grew up in the projects you know something and you know something why because you live in housing you have to live like that yeah. you know but but this is what happens in all these buildings you see a lot of buildings that go up you see mm-hmm. families with little kids see those little kids grow up when they grow up what do they become they become perps and that's when the building goes to crap you know a lot of times the buildings are nice buildings you know people are moving in it's a great new environment but what happens those kids grow up and they destroy the buildings and that's what happens that's that's it's here perfect. that's here there was a lady back in december she was like 44 years old i didn't know this happened until i read it in the new haven register um 44 years old and i don't know if they caught the guy or the gal that did it she was gunned down she was shot in her head she got shot in the head right around the corner from me and she died you know it's it's terrible it's it really is um uh, a dangerous dangerous thing and you know, it, 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 it has an adverse effect because, listen, we don't have a lot down here in New Haven. We have just Yale and pizza. That's it. That's all we have. We are known for nothing else. But New York. They want to do this. They fund the police. Everybody's against cops. It's funny. You know what's funny? One white cop shoots a, a male black or Hispanic. Everybody goes to arms. But how many male blacks are being killed and Hispanics being killed by their own kind in, 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 the, in, in society? Tons of them. Nobody talks about that. 
it's crazy. Unfortunately, there was a case of like a 17-year-old in the Bronx who was a really good kid by all accounts. Um, Brandon Hendricks was his name. He was a basketball player. He was on his way up in life, and he got shot in the neck. I don't know by whom. I don't know if they caught the guy, but he died right there on, on, a, on a stoop. And, you know, you didn't really hear anything about it in the newspapers or anything like that. Sad. We heard about it in New York, you know. Yeah. He was, I believe he went to Fordham Prep. My son went to Fordham Prep. I believe he went to Fordham Prep, you know. But um, yeah, it's really sad, you know. You think about your kids, you know. His poor mother, you know. I mean, she she worked hard to put him to a good school, and look what happens. She you has know? to bury him. No mother should ever have to bury their own kid. I mean, you know, my mom. She she tells me. I mean, she's like, for as crazy as I may drive her, if anything ever happened to me, I'm sure you feel the same way about your kids. I mean, you'd lose it. Yeah, you know, it's not even something you want to think about. And I don't have any kids of my own. I should not. I'm 20, but if I ever do. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure I'll be the same way. So when you got to the homicide unit in 98, uh, Bill has a joke. He's like, people stopped getting killed. That's why he retired. So homicides are going down in the late 90s. You know, the Giuliani administration and the policies that were implemented there that uh, were utilized to try to drive the crime rate down. So when you got to homicide, what district were you working in? And what what's do you remember the first homicide case you had? Yeah, it was a Manhattan South homicide squad. Okay. Yeah downtown the first homicide that i had was actually a guy that got shot on delancey street mm-hmm. and in the brooch houses and i remember he got i remember one of his eyes was like either he got shot in the eye or something because i remember he looked like popeye and i always remember that oh and, and, and barbara butcher was the emmy that showed up on the scene and that's the first time i had seen her and she was kind of like a little bit funny you know so um <laughs> So, and I, and I kind of like was watching her work and I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be interesting, you know, but that was the first homicide that I had. Any, any notable from like that pre 9-11 era before we get to one case, I, I, you know, and you know that case that I'm about to talk about with you prior to that case that we'll get to in just a second, 98 to 2000, any other cases that stick out? That's... Um, there were so many of them, especially like young kids being killed by their parents. I had a few of those, um, uh, there was so many. I can't even think about how, which ones they were, but there was a lot. We had a lot of cases. I can't think of anything in particular right now. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, every case, every every homicide case is a serious case. You know, somebody died. You know, but um, the the cases were involving children were the harder ones. I imagine. Know? As a matter of fact, when I when I got to homicide, I didn't have children yet. I had my son in '98, and I remember like in the beginning when I first was in homicide, I was kind of a little bit cold because I didn't have any. So even when I had my first child homicide, you know, I was a little bit insensitive, what they would describe insensitive. And then when I had my son, I remember we had another child homicide. And I remember crying in the office and my partner, Tommy Bedell, was going, oh, my God, what happened to you? <laughs> After I had a baby, you completely changed, you know, because now I had my son. Now so you now understand. he's shaking baby case. I was like, oh, how could somebody shake the baby? You know, so it was, it, it, I changed a little bit after I had my son, you know, and, and the fact of being like, you know, um, being a little bit more sensitive to the cases. Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't blame. Didn't you mention though? There's one sad case that your old was it your old sergeant died of a heart attack on the job. Yeah, yeah, my old yeah, but that was in a homicide. I was in homicide, and and my sergeant that was my sex crime sergeant was in the tenth squad, um, Sergeant Fiston. And my first first day in homicide, he drops dead in his office. Oh wow. So now they send me to the 10th precinct because the, the people in that squad are so distraught about the, the sergeant dying and, you know, while he was working. 
And now they tell me to go with him to the morgue. But I didn't want to tell anybody. I know this guy. I mean, I work with him. I didn't tell anybody anything. I just said, okay, I went to the morgue with Detective Fletrack, who actually worked with me also in sex crimes. And I remember looking at my sergeant thinking, like, you know, I can't believe he's dead and his face looks blue and all this stuff. You know, it was just, like, really strange way to come into the homicide unit having my, my sergeant from the sex crimes unit drop dead in his office. I looked up him. I, lo- I, I looked up him. I can't speak English today. I looked him up, rather on uh the internet and he's not he's not counted as a line of duty death i i didn't see his like you know i didn't see his face on the officer down memorial page maybe in i don't think it would be um like a cop who got killed the memorial page is basically for cops who got killed in the line of duty and people who died from 9-11 he didn't die from 9-11 i don't think it was a 9-11 no but they have cops on that page like that have died of heart attacks too on the job and he was on yeah why didn't they do that? I don't know why they didn't do that. Maybe they don't know about his case because they they do have cops like they they have Keith Ferguson who was an emergency service sergeant who was chasing somebody and suffered a heart attack as a result. Um, but they don't have you know because there's a lot of cops like him that they fell ill on the job and they died of something related to that. But he's not up there, which I don't I don't know. But hopefully they correct that. Yeah. So the the case another notorious case that you worked um, was the Carnegie Deli massacre. And now I'll set the stage for my listeners and I'll let you take it from there. This is on the night of May 10th, 2001. It's a spring Thursday in New York City. You know, summer's about to start. People are out and about. Jennifer Stahl, to that point in her life, she had been a former actress. Um, she had been in Dirty Dancing as an extra. And for those of you that know that movie, it's, it has Pat, the late Patrick Swayze, the late Jerry Orbach, who was my favorite TV cop ever, Detective Lenny Briscoe on Um And her career fizzled out. She thought she was going to be a big shot. She wasn't. Um, and so she had been living and supporting herself in New York City because she had chosen to become a drug dealer. Um, and she was specifically dealing marijuana and she was living above the famed Carnegie Deli. So on the night of May 10th, Thursday, uh, 2001, um, two men looking to buy from her come into her apartment. And why don't you tell the audience what happened next? I, I, I came on the case the next day. Um, they wind up, they wind up coming into the apartment, they wound up shooting, like, I believe it was four people. Was mm-hmm. it four? Yep. Five. Five I think. people. And, oh, did, did four of them, I think four of them died and one of them lived. Yep. Th- oh, right. three died? I think three died, two lived. Okay, yeah, I don't recall exactly the circumstances of the case, but um, all I know was that my involvement in the case was um, I, I came in the next day and then um, I proceeded to help work on the case. And my, my job was going through all the phone records, would try to find out who the perps were, they were identified. And then one of the perps who were tracking him down all the way down to um, Miami, to Florida, and I wound up flying to Florida when he got apprehended and I got, I got a I was able to do the interrogation with him and get a confession out of him. And that was, um, Sean Sally. And, and I also got, a, uh, I also spoke to the first, the first person that was arrested. I forgot what his name was. Do you recall his name? The first something the Smith. That was something Smith. He was pretty good. And, and, and what happened with him I was when I, came in, when I came in that day, when they had him in, the, when they had him, um, they were inter- interrogating him for hours and hours and hours. And then, um, one of my partners said, why don't you go take a class with him? So I went into the room with him and I sat down with him and I was telling him, um, you know, he reminded me of my brother, Ruben, who you look like a little bit kind of, and I was telling him, you know, remind me of my brother, Ruben, you know, I mean, I don't know what you're lying about. You know, I mean, they, they, they have video, they're going to get your DNA, you know, you should really, um, talk to them, you know, and I, and I, I spoke to him about his child. He told me how, you know, he needed pampers for his child and that's why he did the robbery. Um, so then I, I kind of like convinced him into 
I, I just had a conversation with him. And then when I left the room and they came back in, he confessed to everything. And he told them everything. You know, it's funny thing about him is um, the per- one of the jurors that was on that case, mm-hmm. she became friends with him. And she actually helped his family. She supported his, his child. I read something about that. Yeah. She she sent she helped raise his, his his I'm not sure it was a son or daughter but she helped raise his child you know supporting the family and stuff even though he he was convicted yeah you know she, she helped him out one of the jurors on that case and then Sean Sally was apprehended in in Miami and I flew down into my into Miami in July of 2001 yeah I was so happy to go down there and it was really interesting because I was like one of the the cases you know that I I, I felt like I did really well on it interrogating. Yeah. You know, he gave us a lot of information. The best part is that what he was telling me was how he's, he saw the cops. The, the, he saw the cops. The cops didn't see him. He said hey, he walked right by them. They looked at him, but it, he got a little bit darker because he got more sun. So his, yeah. He went to New Orleans, too, for a little bit. Yeah. Went to New Orleans. He did some work there, and then he went down to Florida. But a lot of perps go down to Florida. Yes. You know, Florida, California. But a lot of people go down to Florida, you know. But it was a really good case, and I learned a lot from that case, you know. And then you learn also, like, you know, just how to interrogate people better, how to get information. It was a really good case. There was a cop down, um, Terry Goldston, Goldston, who, who works in Miami-Dade County Homicide. He actually had got the apprehension. We found out where, where Sean Sally was. We went in and apprehended him. So it was pretty good. We, we worked very well with um, other agencies. And even um, Miami-Dade County, Terry Goldston, like we've always worked very close with him, you know? And he's actually still a Miami-Dade County um, cop. I have to, um, there's a hilarious, and obviously the case itself is not hilarious because, you know, it involved a significant amount of, it involved the loss of life, but there is a really funny New York Post article about you in that case from 2002. Let me get my tablet, let me get my tablet real quick so I can pull it up. And um, I know what it says. Yeah. I, a confession, was it a confession or a brilliant seduction? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, and I have to read it because I, I love the New York Post. The New York Post is hilarious, man. You know, um, let me let me just pull this article up. And it came out in May of 2002. So almost pretty much about a year after um, May 29th, 2002. Um, and it is that headline. Was it was it a confession or a brilliant seduction? And um, uh, while that while that pulls up, let me see. It, it's almost coming along. My Wi-Fi is perilously slow. So, yeah, we'll wait for that. But that being said, um, you know, I imagine... Right. The reason they said that was because I told him that he was a hand, he was a handsome man. You know, you're so handsome. You know, you know, you remind me of my brother. You know, so they thought that I was like kind of like that. I was kind of like seducing him into giving us a confession. When I first read that, I was so angry because I was saying, "How dare they even report say say that?" You know, but you know, but it works. You know, whatever, whatever they want to say. I have See, it here. I have it here. It's Andre Smith was the other suspect's name, um, and it says, and I love the writing because New York Post is just again. It, uh, it, I, who wrote the article? Laura Italiano. Okay. Yeah, in the first the first paragraph. Did cops try ring to wring a confession from a Carnegie Carnegie Deli massacre suspect by leaving him alone with another kind of police siren? <laughs> and it says here a pretty female homicide detective who told him how handsome he was. I mean, I love that man. You know, yeah. and 
the attorney by the name of Andrew Katz says, uh, you told Mr. Smith that he was handsome. Is that correct? That's correct. You responded. But she also said that she told Smith that he reminded her of one of her brothers. Hardly the stuff of flirtation, which is, you know, pretty, pretty much what it amounts to, though. Um, so, yeah, I mean, hey, that case, that case, I wonder, did you encounter a lot of politics with that case in terms of people putting pressure on you to solve it? Because think about it. This is Carnegie, Delhi. This is like a premier destination in New York City. It's May of 2001. So crime had dropped significantly in the city by this point. Did you encounter that or no? No, it, 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 see, when, when we work in a homicide, like the case is not my case. The case belongs to Midtown Elf North Squad. Mm-hmm. So- Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We assist the squad in the homicide. So the case is not my case. It belongs to another squad. You know, so the homicide unit, what we do is we assist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there was no pressure on me. I'm just a detective. There might be pressure on the bosses to solve the cases, but not, not me as a detective. You know, I mean, the detective who had the case, you know, I mean... Of course, there's always political pressure. There's always pressure on the bosses when a homicide like that occurs. But you know something? It is what it is. What are you going to do? Lock? You, you got to lock the right person up. You can't. You just. You can't. You can't. Um. You, it, it doesn't work like that. It's, excuse me. Hold on. Okay. Um, Live podcast and its finest. Oh, all right. So I'll go back and so edit that part. Um. There's, there's always pressure on a homicide case of that magnitude. Like, you know, the fact that it happened over Carnegie Deli, it's a midtown, three people were dead, you know, um, is, you know, so there is pressure, but I didn't feel any pressure. Maybe the bosses did, you know, so I can't say that I felt any pressure. There is pressure to try and solve it, but it was solved, you know? Yeah, it's good. It's good. I feel like I feel like that case gets overshadowed though because like 9-11 happened four months later. So everybody forgot about it. Understandably so. You know, a lot of those cases back then, even to this day, a lot of cases are solved with phone records. Yeah. That's when phone records, when I, that's when I started really learning a lot about how to operate the phone records. John Ross from Taru taught me about the phone records. And that's how I learned how to, you know, work on phone records. And that case is what really helped me advance my detective skills with phone records. Um, I just briefly, cause I, I remember you telling the story on off the cuff. You didn't get down to the trade center that day. You weren't there that day. You got there in the days afterwards you were working in the morgue in the afternoon, in the afternoon after everything had happened. So, I mean, it was, I was down there maybe about two o'clock in the afternoon. It took me a while to get back down the downtown. So about two in the afternoon, I got down there. I remember I was wearing a black suit and it had so much stuff on it. Yeah. Bill Cannon talked about watching the second tower come down from Canal Street, which is not too far from where the World Trade Center is or used to be. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned knowing Maura Smith. And for my listeners who don't know who she is, she, two female police officers died that day. Her and Captain C- Kathy Mazza of the Port Authority Police were both killed. Maura's partner was uh, Officer Robert Fazio. He also was killed that day. And what Maura did, and this is to give you a glimpse of how phenomenal she was that day, um, she was one of the first cops to witness the first plane strike. And so she got witness statements together. Hey, did you see this? Yes. Her and her partner sped down to the scene, 
helped a lot of people escape with their lives that day. And, and her and Officer Fazio both died when the North Tower fell. And, and Mora was assigned to the 13th Precinct, um, which had suffered enough losses already because Anthony Sanchez was a cop there too, and he was gunned down in 1997 responding to a robbery call. Um, you knew Mora. I don't know if you knew her partner, but you knew her. Uh, of the 23 cops from the NYPD that died that day, how many would you say you knew besides her? I knew I knew a few, but I knew I, in the fire department, I knew P- P- Patty Brown. Wow. I knew her. I knew my next door neighbor, um, McGinn. He was my yeah. next door neighbor. Where I live Patty now. Brown's a legend, man. Oh, Patty, yeah, yeah, Patty Brown. Yeah, um, I, I knew him when he was a, uh, a fireman in the around the corner from the two three. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was like really. I mean, he was like a real tough, strong guy. I mean, yep. I was surprised that he died when I heard that he died. So Patty Brown, um, um, what's his name? Um, Bill. McGinn was my next door neighbor. Yep. That was the hardest part. I mean, my, I mean, this guy lived ex- right next door to me. I mean, like, r- his door was next to my door. My kids played with his kids. Mm-hmm. His daughter played with my daughter, you know, with my son when she when he was, like, uh, two years old, you know. So that was really hard. I really hit it close to home when he died. And, I mean, so many people. And then other people that I know, lost relatives, like um, – like I'm um, Brian McLeod in my office, my office lost his aunt, who's more like his sister. You know, he lost her. You know, um, I, I mean, I found that out later on. You know, that, that he lost his aunt, and I, I see how it affected him throughout his life. You know, even as a cop, you know, like how every nine eleven, how you know how sad he gets. You know, but it, that was a really hard time, and I, 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 like, I was assigned to the morgue for like a, for a few months. You know. And I mean, the stuff that I saw in there, like, I'll never forget that. Like, I, I, I don't even like thinking about those images because it just kind of like. No, it's, it's understandable. I mean, Mark talked about knowing John Perry. Um, John Perry was a cop who was retiring that morning. Um, and then he heard what was going on. And I'll be having, uh, you know, I, when I, when I, I read this great book on the bomb squad, I keep mentioning it because this book was fantastic and I'll be having this gentleman on, uh, hopefully next month. But, um. There was this the gentleman, the group, uh, a group of about four or five detectives from the bomb squad got together to respond down there. And among that group was Detective Danny Richards. Um, and they were looking through the customs house. And it was simply just a matter of where you were standing inside that lobby. And that's it was really just where you were. It was fate, you know, where you were, uh, what what name were you on the group chart if you were in the fire department? Because in that case... You know, Danny's partner standing 10 feet in front of him, Danny's standing 10 feet behind him. And when that debris came through the roof, Danny was standing with uh, John DeLara and Mike Curtin from ESU2, and they got killed. So, I mean, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, it's, uh, that, was a, that, was a, that was a really, really hard time. You know, that's like my sergeant, um, Jerry Bayrod. I mean, he rest in peace. He was such a great guy. And and he got he got ran over. His leg got ran over. You know, like a lot of people from my unit, from the homicide unit, were down there. But they all kind of got into a store, from what I, I recall. They all ran and got into a, a, a store so they were safe. But, um, like, Sharon Brooks lost her shoes. You know, she ran out of her shoes, you know. But a lot of them are sick now. A lot of them have... Yeah. A lot of them have, you know, illnesses. And uh, what it is, it, inhaling all that stuff that was down there. Because even myself, that I got there, like, in the afternoon, I remember, like, feeling like I had glass in my face, you know, like, in my skin. And I kept saying, man, I feel like I have glass in my skin. But I wore a mask when I was down there. And that know? saved you probably, because think about it. In yeah, total. But, uh, and also, one other thing that saved me was I actually went into Chelsea Piers, and I took a shower in there. I took a shower because I kept feeling like I had glass in my skin. And I remember taking a shower just to get all that stuff off me. My suit was like completely covered in white. And I was like there two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, like I was 
later and this on, is hours after you know? the buildings had come down and that's tough man to know that you're coming down to the scene where these two skyscrapers used to be and uh you know you know that your colleagues are buried in there you know you to, to know that it's, it's in humans human beings period you know are, are buried in there and that's that's brutal and you know it's you mentioned people getting sick from it in total 441 this is the last thing i'll mention on it because i don't want to spend too much time on 9 11 because it's not a happy thing but um 441 first responders died that day and you take out the fdny casualties nypd port authority police that's a big number and since then 500 you know more than that have died from illnesses just from like you said breathing that stuff in so it's a good thing that you wore a mask because the masks that they got were flimsy they weren't good masks i do have lodges in my lung from, from then but they're not affecting me you know i mean hopefully I mean, they don't thank god i wore a mask yeah i know thank yeah. god i wore a mask you know yeah. but um I, they told me that the mask probably saved me a lot i mean i wanted them to the hospital that night because i wasn't having an asthma attack which i don't have asthma too often mm -hmm. i used to like allergic reaction but that night i did have a really bad asthma attack that took me to the hospital because of the stress or because no. of breathing that stuff in Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Nice. Well, at least we're both together in our fight against asthma. At least I know I'm not alone. Uh, so moving ahead to 2007, this story, it's kind of cute. I, I will say it's kind of cute because when you, you mentioned that your daughter um, was little at the time, she was like four or five years old, and she was telling you, Mommy, when you're going to retire, when you're going to retire, which, you know, man, there's something about when little kids say stuff to you, man, because they're so pure, they're so innocent. Like, it, it, it tugs at you. It gets at you. You know, I have... Um, kids little little kids that are like cousins and, and and nephews and nieces to me and yeah it's you love them at that age it's a cute age so her saying that i mean had you already been thinking about retiring for quite some time before she started kind of uh, prodding with you to retire or what was it I really wasn't i really wasn't but i was feeling like i was burnt out you yeah. know i, I was like i was burnt out and i i was feeling like i really wanted to go but i just didn't know how to go so Rick Torelli told me about a job at NYU, so I, I applied for this job. I went for an interview. Um, Pat Wing, who, who is a PI now that works in here as well, um, you know, he interviewed me, and, and I got this job, and it was a great job. I mean, anybody who want, would have loved that job. It was a, I was a sex crimes liaison for NYU. Mm -hmm. I had my own office. Mm -hmm. You know, it was great. The pay was good. You know, all the benefits were great, but I hated the job so much. Because it was political, you mentioned I hated working nine to five. First of all, I mean, then I I, I did get to change my hours and work evenings sometimes because it was it made more sense to work evenings if I'm going to be interviewing students. Yeah. But I had I had one boss that worked there. She was such a pain in my butt, and I, I just didn't like the politics involved. I didn't like how unfair some of the people that worked there were treated. Mm -hmm. I you know I thought they were trying to run it like the police department, but it's not the police department; it's private sector. I felt like um. I mean, it's just a fake. I just feel like universities is such a fake world. You know, really, I just find it so fake. I mean, I, I, I actually saw college students from NYU making out with homeless men in the park. Some of the girls are bringing men, homeless people into their dorm rooms. Why are you trying to make me throw up my lunch? <laughs> Why are you doing you know, this to me? It was just like, it's just this fake world that they lived in, even the professors. And that's why I'm, I'm always saying, like, you know, we're paying all this money for tuition for them to brainwash our kids. <laughs> like, what's happening in society now? Like, how the kids are thinking. Community college, baby. Community college. It's much better. Because my, my, shout out to Gateway. Yeah, there's, there's all this Ivy League, all this, it's all, it's all 
bull. I'm telling you. I mean, yes. the real world is not what college is like. And the professors, they never lived in a real world. They live in academia, and that's all they've done their whole lives. They don't know anything about real life. I'm sorry. And anybody who's listening who doesn't agree with me, that's my opinion, and I have the right to my opinion. I know in society now, your opinion, if you if you give the wrong opinion, you get you get cast out. Let me, let me just add a disclaimer. If you want to sue anybody, sue Irma. Do not sue me. Uh, <laughs> I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. But no, nah, it's, yeah, it's true because that's the good thing about, I mentioned this as well because Bill was a professor for so many years. And like, I, you know, I talked about it. The good thing about my college is that my college was so diverse and it was a community college. So we got people from you know, from, you know, tough neighborhoods from the street, but also people that lived in okay neighborhoods that grew up nice. I mean, I always grew up in a pretty decent community. So is that mixture of people, you know what? We all got along because we all saw the difference in how we lived. Um, and we were under, we were able to empathize with one another. And as a result, that prepared us so well for the real world. Like people look at community colleges and put them down like community college. Oh, no, but it was, it's, that's really the best breeding ground, I think. For, for people that can get to understand how the world works, as opposed right. to Ivy League. And one of the things people don't realize community college, a lot of the professors from community college are the same professors that are teaching at Fordham, yep. are teaching at yep. the other schools. You that's know, they true. do come and they teach. You know, they become adjunct professors, right? Is that what the right yep, word? Yep, adjunct. That's the correct term. Right, right. I have those. Because my, my nephew was telling me how he was at, I think he was at either Westchester Community College or I forgot where he was, but one of the professors that he had was a professor at Fordham, at Fordham. And he told mm -hmm. the class, I'm teaching you here the same curriculum I'm teaching them over there, but they're right. paying $1,000 a year and you're paying a lot less, but it's the same class. I had financial aid. I paid nothing. Yeah, I'm right. pretty, so, no yeah. debt, baby. Uh, you know, and it was the same education. So um, shout out to Fordham. Like, I think I've had a few people from, from who are alumni of that school on this show. And I, and I think paying all that money to all these professors is just ridiculous. I mean, some of them don't even deserve it. I mean, they're they brainwashing our kids. I'm really, and I mean that. Yeah. And they want, they want to defund the police. How about the professors? Defund the professors. She never shy to share what's on her mind, Miss Homicide Irma Rivera, here on the Mike the New Haven podcast. Uh, so I mentioned your work as a private investigator. A lot of cops go into that. You know, it's it's it's. Well, listen, it makes sense. I mean, you talked about it. Like, stay with what your background is. And you don't have to, per se, because, for example, you were on with Michael O'Keefe. He's an author, and so that's what he loves to do. Like, you know, if you have a means to be able to indulge a passion like writing, for example, do that. But um, you stayed in the investigative work, I mean, and, and for yourself, self-employed, and also for Sage Intelligence, Sage Intelligence Group. And I looked them up just to get a better sense of this interview and how I wanted to uh, conduct this interview. Man, they're good. they got some experienced people. Like, I was reading their bios. Great, man. Who, who, who is that? Who? I was reading their bios, like some of these, like Weisberg and McNeely. I mean, these people, they're, they're legit, man. And now we have Jerry Rivera, who is great. You know, he's a, a tech guy. You know, Raquel, you know, Dan. Like, I, I am so happy to be working with them. I mean, they were asking me for a couple of years to come on board with them. But when my one of my partners, Billy McNeely, went to work with them, then I decided to come in with them. Mm -hmm. And I best decision I made you know it's like I have a home to go to when I'm working you know I can go in there even though I'm, I'm contracted out by them mm -hmm. I go in there and do my other work you know they, they're great I just like it's I'm so, just so fortunate to have them especially right now during COVID that you yeah. know you don't have that many places to go that I can go in there and get my work done so I'm really fortunate and we're doing the child victims act cases you mm -hmm. know so we, I do a lot of those cases with them, and you know, and it's it's pretty good. We work with a lot of good team of lawyers, you know. So I'm really happy working with them. 
As a PI, I got to ask this, and this may seem like a mundane question, but I mean, you know, it's still investigative work. You're still coming across dangerous people. You carry a gun? You know, I just I just purchase a new gun. You know, I just purchase a new gun. I have to pick it up. But I, I, a lot of times I don't carry a gun only because you can't shoot everybody. You really can't shoot everybody. I mean, you can mace the hell out of everybody, you know, but you can't really shoot everybody. So, I mean, I just started, I just started recently doing that again only because um, things are getting really bad. But um, I, I the reason I don't carry a gun a lot of times is because you got to be responsible for it, you know. You just got to yeah. make sure that leave it somewhere which i did once before you know so you know, you, 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 you know when you're when you're not a cop anymore you, you and you stop carrying a gun and all of a sudden you stop carrying a gun again you got to be very careful that you don't leave it in the bathroom that you don't leave it here you don't leave it there and it happens a lot of guys wind up leaving their guns in bathroom stalls you know i did it you know and i'm being honest i did it i left it you know and i and, and when i realized i left it i mean it was big panic you know but i thank god i got it back you know but um it happens you know and since then i really haven't carried a gun but um but i i recently just purchased a new gun a smaller gun you know that fits in my pocket um yeah i i, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that like i'm not because i i just i can't like that's i don't i mean it's nothing to you because you carried one for 25 years almost 26 but man holding something like that in your hands knowing what it's capable of like i i I'd be shook. And that's the whole thing. The whole thing, when, if, if you see, I, I'm experienced with a gun. I know I'm not going to put my gun out on anybody who has an argument with me. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not going to start any fights with anybody. I'm not very confrontational. If people start with me, I kind of like laugh at it and just walk away. I, I, I try not to get angry. That's one thing I've learned in the last few years, not to get angry at people. If people start with me, I just kind of just basically ignore them. And like one line that I say many times, if anybody tells me like, what the hell are you looking at? I think I've mentioned this before. Mm-hmm. If someone, what the fuck, you know, what the F you're looking at? All right. You know, I'm not cursing, but if someone yeah. tells me like, what the F you're looking at? Yeah. My response is, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you remind me so much of, of one of my relatives. You remind me of, of one of my friends that passed away. I'm sorry if I'm staring at you, but you look so much like them. And they basically deescalate the yeah. situation. That's a good tactic. It is really good. And it help, it's helped me before. It helped me not to want to go with some psycho that was on the train that, Later on, I wanted to pushing some woman against uh, a, uh, a train. I saw, I saw that. I was on Channel 7. Yeah, and I saw that guy twice in one day, you know, that kid twice in one day, and he tried to start with me on the train, and I did that to him. He goes, and he, I remember he said to me, they died. Like, he, he didn't understand what I was saying, you know, but I, I was able to walk away from that. Oh, wow, but, I didn't um, know that. I try not to have confrontations with people, you know, and sometimes I, I worry about that. Sometimes when, when you get angry, you can feel the rage growing in you. Yep. You know, you know yeah like you can feel that anger come up but i try to kind of keep it down that's one thing i've learned in the last few years no yeah it's it's good because ultimately i mean you got to be in control otherwise it can get real bad and meet like this this is not intimidating anybody so i have no business fighting anybody i don't want to i i just i hate conflict yeah but having a gun some people just don't even think about it twice did you see that shooting in pennsylvania no what happened Oh my God, I'll send it to you. Oh my God, neighbors were fighting. And one oh, I did see that in the snow. That was crazy. Yeah, that was sad. And over snow. Three people are dead over snow. That I did was see that. Also, that was also neighbors who got shot. They yep. were bullying that guy. They were bullying him. And it sent him over the edge. And then, you know, when the cops went to go get him, he, he shot himself dead, you know, just committed suicide. I don't know how long that bullying went on for. You know, he and your neighbors are constantly calling you names, fighting with you. Eventually, someone's going to snap, you know? So, you know, so carrying, having weapons, you have to learn how to, you, you can't have a gun if you 
if you're a hothead, you know? And, and it being cops, like, we learn how to handle guns. We, we know not to use our guns. Like, you, you, you learn how to think. You only use it if someone's, you know, committing deadly physical force against you or someone's going to hurt you. It's a different story. But, you know, you'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by 6. You know, that's the, that's, that's the old saying. That's the old saying. Well, there's also the knives aspect, too. You know, the old joke about Puerto Ricans with knives. So <laughs> I can say that because I am half Puerto Rican. So, you know, that, there is that aspect, too. Jokes do not bother me at no. I know. I mean no, no harm with them, but yeah. I have that joke with my mom. Whenever my mom's, cuando está en la cocina cocinando, you know, and I, and I see her with that, I'm like, sorry. And again, you know, come in peace. Love you, mom. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've kept you long enough. Um, this has been a great conversation. Time, like, that's the sign of a good conversation when the time just flies by like that, and I feel like it has here. It's been, well, it's 227. Wow, we talked for a long time. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, we did. We did. Um, and I enjoyed it. Like, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I've done a good job, but I have this segment that I conclude with, with every interview, uh, which is called rapid fire and it's five hit and run questions. Speaking of guns, five hit and run questions from me, five answers from you. Uh, so are you ready? All right. I hope I can do it. Let's go. All right. And you can say pass if you want, and we're not strict here. So first, uh, the first question is first thing you, or the thing you miss most about the NYPD the closeness that I had with my friends, you know, be, be going to work every day, every day just being a different day and not knowing what to expect. I like, I like, I like that. I like the challenge of what's going to happen, not mm -hmm. knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm being scared a little bit. I enjoy that. It's a, it gives you a rush. It's an adrenaline rush for sure. Second, funniest call, because there's a lot of characters in New York City, funniest call you ever responded to? When I was in a 2-3 precinct, we had this really big woman that fell out of her bed. And, oh, my God, I remember we were all trying to grab her. And I remember feeling, like, the skin go through Ooh. my hands. And I remember one of the guys came in here inside, the Duke, and he goes, oh, my God, it smells like ass in here. <laughs> that was the funniest call. And then watching EMS roll her onto a sheet and lift her up and put her on the bed. God, like, I would lady. Yeah. Oh, you got to really talk about You got to really eat your spinach for that one. I don't know. Third. <laughs> If you hadn't become a cop, what other career field could you have seen yourself pursuing? I think I would have been a nurse. I oh, mean, that's, that's and I wish I wish I had gone to nursing school as a cop. I wish I could have done both professions. Like, I think nursing is a great profession. Yeah, it is for sure. Shout out to all the nurses out there, especially now with this pandemic yeah. going on. Fourth, my daughter's in a nursing program. Hopefully, she makes she does well. Ah, rooting for her. Shout out to her. Uh, fourth, after a long day's work, favorite bar or restaurant in the city to go to. We used to go to Phoebe's um, back in the day, but mm -hmm. also um, Pug Uglies. In, when I was in the homicide unit, was Pug Uglies, mm -hmm. and when I was uh, a younger cop, when I was when I was my husband, we used to go to Phoebe's mm -hmm. down in Bowery. Yeah, I, I don't that. I don't drink anymore, so now I don't go to bars. Well, I'll be I'll be a drinking age in a few weeks. I don't think I'm going to be touching any alcohol or anything like that. But I do miss the food. The food is. <laughs> Makes you old. Yeah. Nah, I'm good with that. The food in the city, though, that's what I do miss most. I have not I have a lot of family in the city, you know, in Manhattan and in the Bronx, and that's the thing I'm going to look forward to most when you can finally go around freely again, just the restaurants, man. It's, it's the best. When everything opens up, me, you, Bill Cannon, and Mark Dimingo should meet up for lunch. I'm in. I'm in. I got I to gotta take a train down there, you know? I got to get my Metro card and whatnot, but you, you name the place and I'm there. Connecticut and me. Yeah, yeah. New Haven has a lot of great restaurants down here, too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you you named the time and the day. And the last question, fifth and finally, if you could go back in time and give advice to a young Irma Rivera, what would you tell her? Hmm. Don't be so sensitive in the beginning when I was younger. When yeah. I was younger, 
apprehensive, don't be insecure. Like I teach my daughter not to be insecure. I think insecurity can really affect someone's life a lot growing up, you know? So I think that is one thing that I would have changed. I think, I'm, I think now as I've gotten older, I've become more secure within myself. And I think if I had, if I could have changed anything would have been that, you know, being insecure, you know, and that has to do a lot with upbringing, you know, your parents kind of. And what you, you go through too. Like I kind of went through that in middle school cause you know, I got picked on and, um, and you know, there, there are some self doubts that you have to really yeah. peel back, you know, so it's something that can stick with you for a long time. You know, it's a right. difficult thing. When I was younger, my father used to always tell me, oh, cover your face. You're so ugly. My father used to be a little bit mean to me. You know, don't wear heels. You don't know. I, I wish I hadn't, I wish I had um, changed, not been so insecure growing up. Yeah. Well, and listen, it's, it's, as you get older, you learn. That's the whole point. You know, you, you learn, you adapt, like, you know, you're not the same person now that you were when you, like, for example, just that you were in 2000, just naming a random year. I'm not the same person now that I was when I was 14, 15 years old. So you, you, you evolve and that's the beauty of it. Hopefully you evolve in a positive way. And I'd like to think that we both have for sure. And and see, that's the whole thing about being a parent, everything that you, all the mistakes that you made and all the things that all the bad characteristics that you had, you try to teach your children not to be that way. Yep. Yeah, you know, my daughter has a nice relationship with her boyfriend. Like, you know, um, she's pretty good with him. You know, so it, I, I wish I had learned more about that when I was younger. No one taught me anything about relationships when I was a kid. Well, at least you've learned, and you know, it served you well because you're a mom, you're a, you're a wife, and it's it's been a, a an extraordinary life uh, for you. And yeah, I mean, hey, it's 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 this has been like I said, a very fun conversation to have with you. I'm very glad I got you on. Shout out to Bill Cannon for helping set this up because he passed me along your info, and I said, sure, I'll do this, and and here we are. I'm very impressed by you. You should do well in life. I hope you do really well. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So before we go, I always like to let my guests promote stuff and, and I'll promote my stuff and then we'll get out of here. So is there anything that you would like to promote? Um, There's really nothing that I need to promote. You know, I mean, I have a company called The Locators, mm-hmm. you know, that's my company, but I work for the Sage Intelligence Group. If anybody needs a PI, you can call Sage Intelligence Group 212 you know, and we're also working on child victim act cases. If anybody um, was a ch- was a victim of a child abuse as a child, and you want to sue your abuser, you can you know contact us. We can refer you to to lawyers. But um, besides that, I don't really have anything else. Just everybody love each other, be peace, exercise, and you know live a healthy life. And uh, I'll plug myself, and then we'll go. You can for those of you that uh, don't know where to find this podcast. If you're listening for the first time, if you're fans of Off the Cuff, and you're coming over to my uh, channel, um, you can subscribe to this podcast everywhere that you get your podcast: Spreaker, Spotify, Apple. You can you know, we're everywhere, so you can subscribe, leave a five star rate and review. I appreciate it. We do different stuff here. We do sports and news as well. I'm working on getting uh, a hockey writer uh, coming on. It was covered the New York Rangers for many years. I'm trying to confirm him. Also trying to confirm uh, Paul Hassagan, uh, formerly of Rescue One of the FDNY. So it's it's a diverse show. And if you enjoy it, like I said, subscribe, leave a five-star rate and review. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube, MC's Audio, MC Apostrophe S Audio, where you can get the video version of this podcast as well. So I'll be uploading this episode. Depending on the length of it, I might have to split it into two parts. But either way, I will actually, I will split it into two parts. So, so either way, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. And Stick around. Hopefully, I can bring you some more great guests from law enforcement, sports, news, you name it. So, on behalf of Miss Irma Rivera, Miss Homicide, I'm Mike Cologne, and we will see you next time.